0: Well, I think it's safe to assume that we are all glad the election is over. (laughs) You know, over $100 million was spent on Illinois' primary, leading up to what many have declared to be the most important midterm election in American history. And While the reprieve is only temporary, at least for now, our mailboxes will be free from political propaganda. And I'm sure we're all tired of the conflicting messages and the charges and countercharges of who's a liar and who's not that we've been enduring for the past several months. And it is hard to know what to believe. And who to believe in when conflicting voices are shouting all around us. Just when we think we've got it all settled, we hear something new that makes us question our conclusion. So we struggle, trying to make informed decisions on matters that are very important. And when the stakes are high, decisions are hard to make. But as high as the stakes might be for the 2022 midterm, they pale in comparison to what was at stake 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. Jesus was making some pretty fantastic claims about himself, calling himself the bread of life and the light of the world. He was, in fact, making himself equal with God. Now, his miracles certainly made those claims feasible to some, and they were starting to believe in him. But the religious authorities had branded him a liar. So popular opinion of Jesus kept shifting. Who were the people to believe? What were they to believe? And did it really make any difference what they believed anyway? And you know, I think we all realize that, Some decisions we struggle with really make no significant difference at all. What what color to paint the bedroom or which car to buy, if you can even find it, are really not life-changing decisions. Some decisions really don't matter, but other decisions make all the difference in the world and in the world to come. Decisions we make in ballot boxes can change the direction our country takes and make a difference in the lives of millions around the world for generations. But the decision with regard to the person of Jesus makes a difference that lasts throughout eternity. In the 8th chapter of John, we've already seen Jesus forgive a woman caught in adultery, and respond to the Pharisees' charge that he was a liar with no authority. Now they did acknowledge their sin by walking away from the woman, but they refused to believe where Jesus came from or the relationship that he had with the Father in heaven. There would be serious consequences for their unbelief. And Jesus pointed them out as he continued to speak with them in the temple. Picking up our study in John chapter eight. He said therefore again to them, I go away and you shall seek me and shall die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. Therefore the Jews were saying, Surely he will not kill himself, will he, since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Unless you believe, you cannot come. You are of this world, and you shall die in your sins. That summed up the consequences of unbelief in Jesus' day, and the same is true today. Let's look at those verses again. He said, therefore, again to them, I go away, and I shall and you shall seek me and shall die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Therefore the Jews were saying, "Surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, "Where I am going, you cannot come. Where I am going, you cannot come." He had said this before. Earlier in the week, he said, for a little while longer I am with you, and then I go to him who sent me. You shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. He said that twice now. What a contrast to the promise he would later make to his disciples. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He promised believers they could come. He told unbelievers... They could not come. Back in the seventh chapter, the unbelieving Jews responded to Jesus' statement by suggesting he was planning to leave the country and that he would seek a more receptive audience by teaching Greeks. At least this time, they realized he was talking about his death. But they weren't ready to admit they were planning his death, so they suggested that he was going to kill himself. Now, suggesting he might kill himself was, was not just a, a random, harmless thought. They were attacking him by saying it because the taking of one's life was considered to be the worst of all sins. But in spite of their motive, they were almost right. No, he wasn't going to take his own life, but he was going to give it up. Within six months... He would be dead. He would willingly lay it down to make the forgiveness of sin possible. And then, after accomplishing all he had come to earth to do, he was going to return to the one who had sent him. It would be after this departure that Jews would seek him and not be able to find him. Because by the time most of them would realize who he was and where he had gone and would therefore want to join him, it would be too late. It would be too late. Because most of them would persist in unbelief until death would make believers out of them. And I trust you do realize that someday everyone will be a believer. The day is coming when every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But if that day comes after you die in your sin, it will be too late. Jesus knew that that day would come too late for these hardened religious hypocrites. They pretended to be a part of the kingdom of God But in reality, they were of this world. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. Now, there's a big difference between being in the world and being of the world. You know, God has placed us In the world, he created it for us, and he expects us to serve him in this world, but he does not want us to become worldly. As J.B. Phillips put it when paraphrasing Romans 12, 2, we must not allow the world to squeeze us into its mold, and the world has always tried to do just that. You know, I shared several thoughts from Alistair Begg's wonderful little book, Brave by Faith, in last week's church paper. I'm going to do so again this morning. Alistair was a pastor in Scotland before coming to the Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio, nearly 40 years ago, and has noticed some fundamental changes that have taken place in culture and the church since then. And as he notes in his book, he's not the only one to do so. Quoting Tim Keller, he writes, We are entering a new era in which there is not only no social benefit to being Christians, but an actual social cost. In many places, culture is becoming increasingly hostile toward faith and beliefs in God, truth, sin, and the afterlife are disappearing in more and more people. Now, culture is producing people for whom Christianity is not only offensive, but incomprehensible. They don't understand. And this is nothing new. Nothing new. For as we noted in our Bible study last year, and Alistair focuses on in, in his book, Daniel and his friends faced similar challenges when taken captives by Nebuchadnezzar. Again, reading from Alistair Daniel and his friends had grown up in the promised land in Judah. As young men, they found themselves being dragged into exile, far away from the society they had known into a city that neither knew of nor cared about nor was impressed by their faith or their lives. Daniel would live in Babylon from his late teens or early 20s until he was in his 80s or 90s. Most likely he died there. These exiles were understandably fearful of the power that held them in its grip and were wondering what God was doing And whether they could or should keep obeying him in such circumstances. And so the message of Daniel is incredibly relevant for us in our generation. Not because it uh, maps out a strategy for how to deal with our new lack of status or to reverse it. Not because Daniel was a great man and we need to follow his example, buck up, and be more like him. Yes, it's a good idea to seek to emulate the men and women of faith we find in the pages of the Bible. But no, this book will not tell you to be like Daniel. Instead, it will call you to believe in Daniel's God. We will be able to navigate our present moment to the extent that we realize that the God of the exiles in the sixth century BC has not changed in the intervening two and a half millennia. We are in Babylon, and God is sovereign even here. Nothing is actually out of control, and nothing is about to get out of control. But Given the pushback of 21st century secularism, you and I are going to face challenges. The crises will come. The moments will arrive when we are called to go with the flow of our culture rather than obedience to our God in the workplace or the sports club or in how we raise our children or what we save from our pulpits and so on. Those crises will reveal What is inside us? Don't assume you'll stand firm in those moments. Equally, don't assume you will have to give in. Resolve now. Think through where to draw the lines you will not cross. And then he notes, we'll not all necessarily draw our lines in the same places. But drawn they must be, and crossed they must not be. Daniel and his friends allowed themselves to be given names that honored the gods of Babylon, schooled in the literature and language of the Chaldeans, and serve in the courts of pagan kings. But they drew the line on what they would eat. Not because they didn't like it or it offended them, but because God had made it very clear that his people were not to defile themselves by eating unclean food. They drew the line where they were convinced God had drawn the line. Now, Jeremiah had instructed the exiles to settle in to the places he would send them, to build homes plant gardens, raise families, and seek the welfare of the cities into which they were sent. He recognized that they would have to conform in some things in order to live and work in the cultures in which they were exiled, but there were to be limits to their conformity. There were lines that they should not cross. The same must be true of us. We must not allow the world to squeeze us into its mold. We must not buy into the value system of the world. We must never forget that this world is not our home. You know, we place great value on our American citizenship and are very grateful for the freedoms and blessings we enjoy. But we must never forget our eternal home is in heaven. The Jewish leaders, while claiming to be religious, were so tied to the things of this world that they couldn't recognize the one who had been sent to them from above. They, in fact, refused to accept the only person who was from above, who came from the very presence of God. And most importantly, the only one with the power to free them from their sins. They were of this world and they were doomed to share the fate of a fallen world because they were going to die in their sins. I said, therefore, to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Now, back in verse 21, Jesus spoke of their sin in the singular tense, and that sin was the sin of their unbelief. Now he says that unless they believe, they will die in their sins, plural. And to die in your sins means you have to pay the penalty for your sins eternally. That's what gives death its sting, We can't fathom the horror of eternal punishment for our sins. Jesus tried to paint a picture of it by comparing it to being thrown into the Jerusalem city dump, Gehenna, where the flame ever burned and the worm never died. That's a horrible picture, and it should be. Judgment will be horrible if we die in our sins. It has to be. Because it will mean being banished forever from the presence of God and from anything that bears any resemblance to his character. It will mean being cut off eternally from everything good and loving and beautiful. No matter how bad things get here, there's always something beautiful around to remind us that this isn't hell. But in hell, there will be no relief. Hell will be an absolutely horrible place, devoid of anything good, and hell is the destiny of all who die in their sins due to the sin of unbelief. Hell is the destiny of all who refuse to believe in Jesus. For as he said, unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. Now the word he is inserted here. I am he. It makes more sense to us that way. But by adding the word he, the translators lost something very significant. When Moses asked God whom he should say had sent him, God said, tell them, I am has sent you. I am is the name of God. Jesus is here referring to himself as I am. He's saying, I am God. And unless you believe it, you will die in your sins. If we would be saved, From the penalty of our sins, we must believe that Jesus is, I am. To die in our sins is to face what the writer of Hebrews calls the certain terrifying expectation of judgment. And it's impossible to rest in peace in death if you die without Christ. Don't ever assure someone that a departed loved one is at peace unless you know of his or her faith in Christ. Because to die without him is to die in your sins. And to die in your sins is to die condemned to hell. That's where the unbelieving Jews were headed. The only thing that could stop it would be for them to have a complete change of heart and to embrace faith in Jesus as the Son of God and as their Savior and Lord. And that's the only thing that keeps us from dying in our sins as well. If we would hear the words come unto me in death we must come to him now before it's too late. We must recognize that this world is not our home renounce our worldly life and be born again of the water and the spirit. If we'll do that He will welcome us to the home he is now preparing for us in heaven. Our sins will be gone and we'll be able to spend eternity with all who love and have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ.